This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Robin Lassiter. I'm Stuart Davis. Robin is an artist, author. She's certified in hypnotherapy, Reiki, and yoga. She's done extensive work in addiction and, of course, is an experiencer. Her history includes bumping up against the boundary of the afterlife, myriad non-human entities, precognition, temporarily becoming a jaguar, high strangeness in sound and light, and yes, that rare, elusive sense of humor in alien beings. We go deep on all of that, but first. This is the first time that I have spoken my entire story. I've kept it inside and compartmentalized for most of my life. And through the process of sort of coming out over the last year and the guides prompting me to do that in not very subtly, you know, with, with big, profound, dramatic experiences, the book that I wrote allowed me to put all of this into a narrative that I could tell myself first. And so I'm going to sort of loosely follow the structure of the book because I feel like it was given to me specifically so that I could be able to speak these things. I'm actually going to start with my childhood because it was very, it was a really special childhood. I, my parents were back to the lander hippies. They sort of still are back to the lander hippies. They, they're both in their seventies. My dad still spends the summer chopping wood and they still have a wood stove. They still have solar panels. All the water still comes from a well. And they have spent the last 40 years or so turning the property that I grew up on into this beautiful park almost. And when they moved there in the seventies, you know, my dad arrived first, he bought the property and lived in a teepee for a year. He lived alone. He, he had a truck, but no money for gas. And so he would walk down to the post office every day, which was three miles away. Even then, and still, I think the closest neighbor is about a mile. If you walk up and over the ridge, if you don't follow the road, it's about a mile. And so it was a very secluded little valley. He and my mom met and started to make a life there. And they, you know, a lot of people moved to the country, I think in the seventies with this dream, but my parents actually did it. They really did. My dad built a geodesic dome. It was the first thing that he'd ever built. My parents lived in it without plumbing, without electricity, with just a wood stove to keep them warm in the Colorado winters. And so that's what I came into the world those were the surroundings that I came into. And we had chickens and horses and a wild beehive that my father had found and caught and kept. And the memories of my childhood are so steeped in nature and animals. And there were no external lights there. So the night sky was incredible. And I knew when winter was coming because Orion came up over the ridgeline and it was very easy to be sensitive to nature and the world in that environment. Even from that young age, from what I remember, I just was always so sensitive, so sensitive to energies and nature and my family and their emotions, and which is a really wonderful thing. I consider that one of the gifts that I was given when I chose to, to come to this planet, which is that... I was able to sense nature, to sense the other beings that are present on the planet with us and other beings who visited me from elsewhere. It was, it was all very real and present for me. But the other side of that sensitivity was that I felt incredibly unsafe in my body a lot of the time. The part of the world that made perfect sense, which was nature and the beings and my horses and the animals was a very safe place for me, you know, even with the rattlesnakes and the bears and the coyotes and the hawks stealing the chickens and all of that and getting bitten by ants and stung by bees and all the things that happen when you spend your childhood outside. That was all very safe for me, but the sort of human world was, was very unsafe for me, even in my little family. Emotions felt overwhelming. Humans 
don't always make a lot of sense. My parents are wonderful people, but they were young and working through life and discovering who they were. And things were sometimes dramatic. And that always just knocked me off my square. I always found found it very, very difficult. And so that was the other side of that gift of sensitivity is that I just, I found the world really, really hard to be in from a really young age. And the other thing that happened as part of sort of the nature and magic and all of the beings that inhabited that valley is that I, from a really young age, was visited by non-human beings. And I often had out-of-body experiences. I was often kind of pulled out of my body and found myself flying, traveling through the air with an entity next to me. I had really intense dreams from a really young age. And the most intense of those were what I call Armageddon dreams, where the planet was being destroyed or really, really dark things, you know, people being crucified and a lot of suffering and running and war. And it was terrifying. And I had no context for them because we didn't, we didn't even have a television. (laughs) My family wasn't religious. You know, there was no place for me to have sourced these things from. And they were so terrifying and so shocking. And they often seemed to come in in conjunction with these visitors who would come. So that was my childhood. I didn't know that, that, that any of that wasn't normal. I just, you know, that was the time when I was just steeped in everything and learning what it was like to be a human and a person and what the world was and how things felt and how people acted and what a dream was and all of that. I, it was just how my childhood was. But as I got a little older, I still had this mix of a deep sense of safety and understanding of nature and the natural world. And at the same time, a very deep sense of unsafety in the parts of humanness that make no sense. You know, the parts where we're guarded and armored and people are mean to each other and you don't know why, or people have emotions that are big and I couldn't put my finger on it. And when I was about 11 or 12 years old, my grandmother came to visit and she was a chain smoker and she chain smoked menthol cigarettes. And I watched her smoke and was just totally fascinated by it. And so I looked in her luggage and she had cartons of cigarettes that she'd brought for this short visit to my parents' house. She she came from back East and I stole a pack of her cigarettes and I took a book from our really big library. I knew what book wouldn't be missed something that nobody read and I my dad had given me a little pocket knife and I cut a hole out of the center of the book and I put the pack of cigarettes inside and I went out into the woods behind the barn on the north facing side where it was a place that my sister and I didn't play and I dug a hole and I buried them there and then I stole some matches and I went back and I smoked my first cigarette and the instant relief from the world, (laughs) you know, that had made no sense to me was profound. I was gone from it. I could escape from the confusion of my emotions in my body. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a big moment for me (laughs) because I found a way to deal with the world. You know, I found a way to, to get a little bit of distance, to step a little further away from myself and to manage the difficulty of being a human and also the confusion that nobody else seemed to be having as hard a time as I was. I mean, I, I grew up in paradise. I grew up in paradise. When I was a year old, my parents brought a horse home from a meat sale at that time. They used to sell horses that were kind of broken for dog food. My parents went to this sale and my mom was crying and bidding on all the horses and driving up the price and everybody sort of got together and let her have this little two-month-old filly named glory for 45 dollars to just kind of send her on her way so she would stop (laughs) messing up the process and they brought that horse home when i was a year old and then they got a pregnant paint pony named gypsy and gypsy was my sister's and the foal was mine. And I grew up with that. I grew up on hundreds of acres. We would wake up in the morning, 
at the crack of dawn and find the horses and ride all day. And I had an idyllic paradise childhood and I was still terrified, suffering, confused, and nobody else seemed to be that way. (laughs) Everybody else seemed to have figured this out. So those were the things that were established in me just by virtue of me coming into the world in that little valley into my family. I sort of did the things that I thought I was supposed to do. I, I was good in school. I applied to go to college. I felt like there was a pattern that we were supposed to follow as humans, and I did my best with it. But I got to college. I decided to major in equine science because I spent my childhood even buying horses and training them, and I wanted that to be my life. So when I went to college, I went into equine science, and I didn't realize that it was not that. The first class that I can remember was sort of an equine anatomy class, and there were bones scattered throughout the classroom, and they were dead and separated, and it was so shocking to me. It was, again, just this shock, and nobody seemed to mind (laughs) except for me. I was just baffled by it. I was so confused by the world, and so I quit school. I quit college. I ran from it, and that really began the portion of my life where I just ran from myself for a long time. So when I was in college, I quit in my second semester. I ran away and joined a commune and I didn't last very long there. And I lived in Seattle for a while and I just bounced around. I I didn't know what to do or what life was supposed to be like. I didn't know what I was looking for and everything was chaotic and out of control. I was already drinking pretty heavily and smoking and doing drugs. And some of that was really fun. But what I remember most about it is how terrifying it was. I just had no anchor for myself. I had no place to land. Nothing made any sense to me. But what I realized during that time, I think I read a book or somehow the idea of the monomyth was given to me. So the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, this monomyth where the hero goes on an adventure and crosses a threshold and enters a cave and meets the thing that will kill them and emerges and has the elixir and then travels back home. And there was a cycle and a way that humans went through processes of suffering on the planet. And when I discovered that, I was so grateful because it was the only thing that I had found that felt similar to the natural world. It felt like, oh, there's a rhythm here. And yes, it's hard. And yes, we suffer. And yes, we go down into the underworld. But if we can have the courage to do that, then we emerge out the other side. And I was so grateful to find that. And I was, you know, in my 20s and from where I am now, felt like I was very unconscious and just sort of thrashing through this. But I started to notice that it was true. So that instead of turning away from whatever was trying to get my attention, new drama or trauma that I found myself in the middle of, instead of trying to to get away from that, I started to turn towards it. And every time I turned towards it and stepped towards the thing that scared me, this magical transformation happened. And so I just, I was so grateful. I was so grateful for that. And I started using it like a drug. (laughs) I started burning my life down and jumping from one bad idea to the next, but surviving and realizing that there was something there that was supporting this process. And that was really important to me because it stayed with me through my whole life. And it's, it's transformed a little bit for me now, but gaining the courage to turn towards the thing that scares me the most became foundational later on as I journeyed through life. You know, so through that process, I kind of found myself alone, not in a relationship. I was sober. I got sober for the first time in my early 30s. And I was living by myself in a little house in New Mexico. And I had, I'd sort of recreated my childhood a bit. I had chickens and I had a horse and a garden and I was calm. You know, I felt some space. I started to just feel sort of the flow of nature again, and I wasn't running. And that's when, as if those beings that had visited me in childhood 
as if they had been waiting for there to be space and me not to be in a blind panic, <laughs> which is what so much of my life had felt like, as if they'd been waiting for that. This new thing arrived in that moment when I was just starting to get some of my bearings and I had a career that was just starting that was a kind of a big girl job, you know, where I, I was able to see a future there and I had a lot of responsibility and I, I wasn't running and living in communes and, you know, like belly dancing at parties or whatever, you know, all the things that I had been doing that were that sort of the real world wasn't very supportive of. I had kind of come into the world and was trying to make myself a normal life. And right at that moment, I started having really intense, bizarre experiences. And so I, it was the first time I had sleep paralysis and I, it was terrifying. You know, anybody who's had sleep paralysis knows how utterly terrifying it is. It feels like death or something worse is coming and there's nothing you can do about it. I'd had experiences before of being out of body and entities around and things like that, but this is the first time that I'd experienced being paralyzed and feeling something climbing onto the bed or feeling the bed violently shaking and then pulling myself up out of the paralysis with all of my strength and finding that even the paintings on the wall behind me were smacking the wall so that it felt like an earthquake was happening or something, but there was no, I was in Northern New Mexico. There's just, I mean, I did Google if there had been an earthquake, like I was, I, I was looking, I didn't understand what was happening at all. <laughs> <laughs> I would Google in the morning. I'd say, is it? Not exactly on a fault line there. No, no, no. Although that would have been a more comforting answer to what was happening. And so during that time too, I started having, you know, I only know what these things are called because I had to research them and find them. I didn't, I'd never heard of sleep paralysis. I'd never heard of exploding head syndrome, which is really hard to describe, but it's exactly like it sounds, you know, this bang inside your head that would wake me up out of a sleep. I started hearing voices in the room. I, what it felt like to me with sleep paralysis is that I was awake. I was paralyzed. And I was being dragged down, my, you know, into something. And eventually my consciousness would sort of succumb to that. And so I would succumb to that feeling. And then I would be out of my body next to myself, you know, standing next to myself, looking down at my body in bed. And there would be an entity in the room and they would, I would just go with them. I, I didn't even have an idea of consent or if I should or if I shouldn't. I just, I would follow them out of the room, out my bedroom, out the front door, over the railing of the porch. And then I would be outside and we would travel. And, you know, these experiences were at that time, mostly just terrifying. There wasn't a lot of magic to them. You know, even though I do, you know, I have a memory of sort of floating over the little short buffalo grass of Northern New Mexico and being in a full moon kind of night and everything was illuminated and it was the world, but it wasn't the same world that I had been in and feeling sort of the, the magic and astonishment, like the astonishing experience that I was having. And, but for the most part, it was just, it was just very scary. I struggled with it for a really long time and I didn't tell anybody for a really long time. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I eventually confided in somebody close to me. And, you know, this person loved me and loves me still with full and total love. <laughs> and, but she suggested that I see a psychiatrist and maybe get on some medication. And, and I, I really, really struggled with that. You know, this inner world that was connected to felt connected somehow to the to the magic of my childhood which was nature and these entities around me and sort of the way that sort of this a kind of natural state of what this planet is and feeling like medicating that would be a denial of that and such a deep denial of myself even though i was many years away from trusting 
myself or my experiences, I still felt this profound fear and grief around deciding that that wasn't real, that none of that was actually happening and that it was a malfunction in me. But it was a very, very difficult moment because I didn't have answers for it. And I really trusted this person and this person really, really loves me. And uh, it was really difficult to make that decision to not go that route. But what helped me and what happened was that I began having premonitions and precognitive dreams. And they were so undeniable and they involved other people. So I would have this insane, intense dream. And then I would contact the other person and tell them about it. And that person would go, holy shit, that happened to me yesterday. Or it was this confirmation of something inside of me. I, and it happened over and over again for a long period of time while the sleep paralysis and the, the visitors and the out of body and the people speaking my name in an empty room and all of these things were happening. This was also happening. And it gave me validation and sort of proof that it wasn't something that was just internal in me. Like this also could interact with other people and the outside world. And that really helped me and it really saved me. And so at that point I began having dreams about these spheres and you know, they would start with Armageddon dreams. So I'd be dreaming the, the Armageddon dreams, you know, in a long line of, of refugees traveling and thinking to myself, how can I help? But also thinking the only thing I have to give these people are the clothes on my back. But if I give them those, I'll have nothing to trade later when I need to trade for food or shelter and really struggling with like how to help, but having nothing to give. and explosions and just all of the suffering with, that these dreams brought. And then out of the sky of these dreams would float these massive spheres, purple, you know, like this purple, beautiful, luminescent, surrounded by light, but very contained. So not giving off light, but lit up these spheres. And there was a purple one and a green one and a blue one and they the blue one didn't always come but the purple one and the green one would come and they would come down out of the sky just right into my dream right into my face as I'm dreaming this I would sort of reel back and feel completely overwhelmed and sort of lose consciousness in the dream I just that's where it would end and that happened over and over along with all these other things that were happening and then they began to teach me things. But first, <laughs> before that, the most profound thing in my life up to that point happened, which is I was stuck in sleep paralysis one night and it was awful. And I was, it was like this rolling, I would force myself to move my pinky or to take a deep enough breath or, or to bring, you know, to try to bring myself out of paralysis. And I would come up for a minute and then just be pulled right back down into it. And it was, you know, it was terrifying and it seemed to last for hours and I was exhausted and I didn't know what to do because, you know, in that state, the terror of sort of surrendering to it feels like, it feels like a death. It feels like it felt like I was facing death. So after hours of this and hours and hours and hours, I finally sort of had a conscious thought and I thought, I don't know what else to do here. And I wonder what would happen if I just let this happen to me, whatever's trying to happen to me. I wonder what will happen if I just let it happen to me. And I only had that thought because I had tried every other door, which is the theme for me. Like <laughs> I will try. I'll try all the doors before I turn towards and go through the one. But I had learned in my life that turning towards the thing that scared me was what progressed the story. Like that's, that's how we move this along. That's how, that's how something happens and nothing was happening here except for terror. And so I decided, I chose, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to turn towards it and I'm going to see what happens. 
and I kind of braced myself and got the courage and I, I surrendered. And instantly, I was overwhelmed by light and sound, this buzzing vibration that was made of both light and sound. This is really bright golden light and this a fullness of sound that seemed to also take up space. It overwhelmed all of me, all of me. And I was in that space. It was shocking, you know, but I, something new was happening. And I realized that the sound, this fullness of sound was the sound of every sound on the planet simultaneously. It was the sound of everything at once. And I just knew that. Suddenly my consciousness was very, very clear. I was very present. I had a point of awareness that I could experience these things from that wasn't mixed with the fear of the sleep paralysis or the terror in my body or anything like that. I had this clarity and I understood that the sound was all sounds. So I honed in on one and it was the sound of leaves rustling in a forest. And as soon as I honed in on that sound, I instantly Yeah, I've never, I've never, I don't, I don't think I've ever spoken these things before. So, so instantly I was taken, I was inside of a black jungle cat. So I was inside of this cat. I was this cat. I was a panther or a jaguar in some dark night jungle and I could hear the leaves. The sound was the leaves that I was walking through, the rustle of the leaves, this underbrush that I was walking through. And I could feel so exquisitely. The senses were turned up to this incredible height. I could hear every little sound and I knew what every little sound was. You know, that rustle over there is a little, is a little rodent in the brush. And, and I could hear the wind, which wasn't blowing down here, but was blowing up in the canopy. And everything was, the fullness of the world around me was so present with me. And it was coming to me through my senses of, as this cat, as this really exquisite, incredible creature. And as I was walking, I could feel the pads of my feet were electrically connected to the ground with every step. And it was this Every hair was an antenna and I could see clearly in the night and there was this confidence, this amazing certainty that I was walking through the night with. Like, I know that I'll eat when I need to eat. I was the queen of this place for sure. And it was astonishing. It was, so, it was such a full experience. It wasn't a dream. I wasn't thinking about being it. I was, I was fully, fully in this experience. And then I began to notice the sound again, the buzzing, the fullness, the vibration. And I understood that anywhere that I wanted to place my attention, I could go there and experience anything that I wanted to experience. And as I came to that realization, I was engulfed again in the sound and the light and the vibration. I began to feel my body no longer in the cat that experience left behind. I began to feel my body. It was as if it turned into millions of tiny champagne bubbles that were slowly moving away from each other. So I could feel myself in each of them, but I was expanding and I was sort of dissolving and it was utterly terrifying. <laughs> it was so, it was, it was terrifying. I was sort of losing, I was unbecoming. And these things are so hard to talk about because of, there was definitely a linear aspect to it where one thing happened and then the next thing happened, but there was also an aspect of presence. Like I am here, I am here, I am here. And the next place I was, was in this, it was space as in 
the space that surrounds our planet. But there were no stars. It was perfectly, richly, velvetly black. There was no light. I was a conscious presence in it. I could still feel my body expanding away from itself and dissolving. But this space was not a void. There was this a fullness here, and it was a fullness of an intelligence and a presence. And from the from that space, a sort of entity emerged a being and I just felt their presence I couldn't see you know she felt feminine to me I couldn't see her but from that full black velvety intelligence this entity made herself known to me and sort of gestured towards a geometric shape which felt like going towards the point of a pyramid or a triangle and there was a pull towards that and I could feel sort of a suction happening. And I looked and observed all my little champagne bubble self moving towards that and kind of getting sucked into it. And that scared me. Part of me went, <laughs> part of some of my little champagne bubbles went through that portal. And this entity, she was beckoning me to come through. And so I, I was approaching and part of me was already through. And I realized that I was approaching a gateway where the thought that came to me was, oh, this is where we go when we die. On the other side of this is the place that we are when we're not alive anymore, when we're dead, when we've made that transition. And the suction got stronger, the little bubbles of me were moving into it faster, and I became terrified and I with all of my will and might sort of pushed myself back away from it and slammed back into my body. I sat up in bed, you know, <laughs> astonished and amazed at this realer than real experience that I had just had this more alive and present and real experience that I'd ever had in my life and the shock of it and the, the magic of it and did the most improbable thing in that moment after the biggest thing that ever had happened to me in my life, which is that I laid right back down and went to sleep. I just laid down, put my head on the pillow and was asleep and fell asleep directly into a dream. And in the dream, I, was, I knew exactly where I was. I was one valley to the north of the valley that I grew up in. So there was a ridge line to my left, dark fir and pine trees, and it was winter. There was like three feet of snow. I was standing there in the snow, and I look forward at the horizon, and the ridge sort of swept around in front of me. There was a horizon line between that ridge and the sky in front of me, and up from that horizon line rose these four beings, and they were one mass, but there were four heads and four sets of shoulders. And they were made of the light and the sound that I had just experienced. But it was silent here. I didn't have that buzzing, but I could see that they were made of the same thing. And they were huge. They rose up out of the horizon line, way above the ridge line way up into the sky and they said we're here for you when you're ready then i you know i guess fell asleep and had normal dreams and woke up the next day in total astonishment so after that experience after the most profound out-of-body experience approaching that gateway and having the beings rise up I called my dad the next day and I explained to him as best I could what happened. And he helpfully, coincidentally, synchronistically was reading a book about hypnagogic states in early humans. And I never read the book. I can only say what he told me about it. I don't even know the name of the book, but what he said was that this is something that happens to humans and that 
indigenous cultures describe it in different ways. And he told me about a culture who described being in a certain state and then feeling as if they were overcome by a swarm of bees. And just that simple, that one detail, uh, I felt such relief because it, I felt like, okay, I'm human. This is a human thing that happens, this buzzing. I'm describing it as light and as vibration and sound and imagining being overcome by a swarm of bees. Like, yeah, although the experience I had was so full, there were no edges to it. There was a totality to it, but I could imagine describing it that way. And it helped me so much. It helped me understand this is a human thing. This is something that happens to humans. I'm a human. I can, you know, like the, the overculture isn't talking about this, but it's a thing. It exists. I'm not insane. I haven't had this experience that nobody else has had. And sort of my father as well, kind of gleefully and giddily reporting this to me, which is how I remember it. He was just like, that's so cool. Cause I just read this and it was about art. You know, it was about the humans who created the first art that we know of, the cave art. And the author, I guess, was talking about how that's where these, this inspiration came from, was from these experiences. And I was like, okay, I'm an artist. I can do this. I have a framework for it. And I was so grateful for that because I didn't have much of an internal framework or foundation. Still very much like just trying to get through the day. <laughs> So after that experience, then is when the spheres started to teach me things. I'd be having an Armageddon dream. They would come down and the first and probably most profound of those was that the purple sphere, this beautiful purple sphere came down and in the dream, I kind of popped into it. And so then I was inside of it and I was walking in a place where I didn't know yet, but eventually I would end up living near that place. But it was a familiar landscape to me because it was the, you know, Southern Colorado high desert landscape. It was pinions and junipers and short buffalo grass and yucca and lichen covered rocks and all of those things. It was a very familiar landscape to me. And so I was walking inside of this purple sphere and this being showed up next to me. I knew this was a dream. It was a very real and profound dream, but it didn't feel like the hyper real. It felt lucid, but it didn't feel like the hyper real experience I'd had before. This, this I would place in the realm of dream, even though a really wonderful and vivid one. But this being showed up next to me. And I have to say, I only have put all of this somewhat together as I've learned about other people's experiences, but the being showed up and was wearing this long purple robe with a collar, feminine, but had a human face, which even then, like even in the midst of the dream, I felt like this being was presenting herself in a way that I would just not take it all quite so seriously. She, she had gray hair and it was wild sort of electric and coming off of her head in every direction. And she had this sort of energy of like a wink and a nod to me. So here we are, we're in this teaching session, but don't take it so very seriously as you tend to do. Just take it down a notch. It's going to be okay. So walking along in this sphere and she's teaching me things and we're, you know, it's this beautiful landscape and she's speaking to me and the feeling in that sphere was this big, open, unarmored love and a perspective of being that was not attached to or distracted by the small, smaller parts of myself that have to do with fear and blame and wounding and shame and guilt and pain and none of that was there sort of my default reality emotional body experience was different i felt like ah oh, i just understood 
that this is also a space that I could be where everything is love and kind of all the bullshit stripped away. And it's very simple. It's a very simple place to be. You just kind of let go of those things. And so she's walking along and where she's teaching me these things and up ahead on the ground, I see this writhing as if in agony, huge tarantula, a big spider. And she tells me this, my guide here tells me very clearly, spiders aren't bad. They're not evil. This is a teaching moment. So don't take this literally. This has nothing to do with spiders. Okay. But she was explaining to me that if someone isn't in this energy or someone isn't close enough to be able to be in this energy, that it's very painful for them and that it's actually can kill the physical body to move too quickly between these states, between these states of being. And so we went up to the spider and you could, I could just feel this anger and rage and pain radiating off of this spider. And it was writhing and flipping around and eventually died. You know, I understood the, the lesson. I understood it wasn't literally about a spider, but I understood the lesson. And so we continued walking and we got to the edge of the sphere. We got to the edge of this purple sphere. And on the other side of it was a friend of mine who was yelling, you know, she was yelling and screaming and she was in rage and she was in, in pain and she was blaming everybody. She was, she was in this energy. And I beckoned to her and I said, come in here. This is, it's amazing in here. It's amazing. I wanted her to show her that perspective. And then I looked closer and I could see tears squeezing out of the corners of her eyes and understood that all of this anger and rage was all actually about pain. And I had such compassion. I really wanted to share this with her and help her to see. So I kept asking her to come in and the guide again reminded me, she said, her physical body will not survive the transition between states. Like there must be preparation. And it's not about hierarchy like there was no pity for her there was it was full compassion but there wasn't the pity that sort of comes with the subtle hierarchical positioning of i have it all figured out and you're still suffering there was none of that it there wasn't pity but there was compassion and she just explained to me how moving from different states takes a while and if it's too quick like your physical body literally can't do it and so that was the teaching of that sphere. And it was like this for a while. This all began happening in the beginning of 2012. And this went on for months. And so there would be these different teachings and the different spheres would come. And when the blue one would come, I would have the most bizarre, full-on UFO quote-unquote alien experiences. So the blue one would show up, I would pass out into the blue sphere. I would wake up, I'd look at the stars, the sky would be full of stars and then they would all start moving and dancing and there would be just thousands of UFOs and I would have this elation in my body, just ecstasy, you know, so excited, so excited. And they would interact with me and I could sort of conduct them, you know, I could move my hands and they would follow my movements and they would come and be with me. And it was this heightened ecstatic, joyous, lovely experience with the blue sphere and weird shit, just weird, weird shit. For example, you know, one night the blue sphere comes, I kind of fall out of consciousness, become awake as just a point of consciousness. And I'm looking over the shoulder of these two beings and I can see my body on a table on a metal table and there's a light above and they're doing something to me. And it's this, they're working on this, on something on my neck. And I just kind of peer over them. I'm just curious. I'm like, well, what, what are we doing? And they kind of notice me, notice them. They like notice that I'm there and I can see that there's like this port on my neck that they're struggling with. Suddenly they're in lab coats and they like wink, kind of nudge, you know, like take an elbow and nudge the other one in the rib to like say, hey, she's here and present. And one says to the other, no, no, remember on these models, it's righty tighty, lefty loosey. And then they turn this port on my neck and my consciousness gets sucked back into my body. 
And it was such a bizarre, funny, strange experience. Um, (laughs) Do you think that was for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like now, I, I didn't know anything about this, but now I've heard how people say that they, you know, a lot of these beings don't have senses of humor. But I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. So at the same time, there's so many little threads to follow, but following that little thread, you know, they're, they're fucking with something on my neck. And then the blue sphere comes back. I have another dream. I'm inside of this mountain. I'm inside of a mountain. Okay. But it's this huge open space. And in the center of it is this beautiful, extraordinarily beautiful blue ship, but it looks organic. It looks like it is sort of like a flower sea creature mix. It's got these petals that reach up and around and they kind of peel back. They kind of feel a little, not like fleshy, but not, they feel alive, you know, and it sort of unfurls to reveal this beautiful, incredibly blue light inside that's just so gorgeous. And, and I'm there, but I'm in a wheelchair and I'm in a wheelchair because I have cancer and I'm going to die, but I'm fine with it. I'm okay. And I know that the cancer has started in my neck. And so I don't know if I'm just piecing these things together, but ultimately did end up with cancer in my neck. I don't know. I truly don't know, except for the fact that these were not the kind of dream where your mind is just sort of unraveling the clutter of the day. These were so, so vivid, so alive, present dreams. And so in that moment, I don't know what they were doing on my neck. The shtick that they did, the like little comedy routine that they did for me definitely took any fear away that I had, but I don't know what it all means. I, it was just the series of experiences during that time that were really undeniably important for me, definitely in my life. And so in response to these experiences, um, because as they continued along, the Armageddon dreams did not stop. They instead ramped up. I was living in a very nice little modular home with a little bit of land and a horse and garden and all of that. But I began to have this intense sensation that I needed to strip everything away. And I needed to not live like this. I needed not a 30-year mortgage. I I didn't want to live in a little house and do the things that you do. I, I still, my entire life, I've had like one continuous existential crisis. Like, what are, what are we all doing? What are we supposed to be doing every day? All of it, all, you know, the, okay, I guess this is what we do, but I never really felt it. And so during that time, in the midst of all of these experiences, the spheres and the things they were teaching me and the dreams and all of that, I decided I'm going to give everything away that I own. I'm going to sell my house or rent it out and I'm going to go live close to the land. And the moment that I made that decision, you know, things just happened and it was very easy and there were a lot of synchronicities and I felt like I was being swept along in this. I didn't know what I was going to live in or where I was going to live. And then the next day I went to visit a farm and they were getting rid of a yurt that they had lived in for a year. And so I bought their yurt and had no place to put it. And I put my house up for sale, but it was going to take too long. So I decided to rent it out. So I rented out my house. I gave away everything that I owned, including my horse, which was heartbreaking, but I couldn't afford her at that time. So I I gave her to a local ranch and I said, if she can't live the rest of her life out here, call me and I'll, I'll bring her back to me. But I made sure that she was okay. And I got all my possessions down to what would fit in a 265 square foot yurt. So I had the yurt, the date that the people were moving in, which was less than 30 days away, and I had no place to put it. The days were going by and I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I said at some point, I sort of said to the universe, 
or to whoever had been taking me on this journey, like, if this is what you want, you got to help me out here. Like, I need a place to live. It needs to be cheap and it needs to be now. And by the end of that day, I had a friend who's a realtor. She had sold some property to someone who was maybe going to use it in the future. They had just kind of bought it for the moment. So I had 200 acres of empty land and a place to put my yurt for $100 a month. And with the help of a few friends, constructed a little deck. I put up the yurt. I put in my wood stove. I put a little futon in there. One little cabinet for my two cups and two bowls and two spoons. And I moved on to this empty property. I didn't have electricity. No, I didn't. I had a tiny little solar panel. So it was enough to charge my phone. And I had a lamp and I had a radio. I didn't have any running water. And I lived there for almost two years and it was amazing. And I saw amazing things there. I saw craft all the time. I was back in connection with nature. There were the owls and the coyotes at night. And somehow I had stumbled on accidentally setting up my yurt so that when winter came, Orion rose through the one of two windows of my yurt and I felt connected again. I felt connected again. I understood the world again. I had a dog. We just wandered around in the forest. I had a job. I would wake up in the morning. The fire would have gone out and there was no insulation. And so all the water inside the structure would be frozen solid. And I would light a big fire and heat up the water so that my dog would have that for the day. And it would be like nine degrees outside and I would get in my car and drive to the gym and work out and take a shower and go to work and have kind of a normal career work day and then drive the 30 minutes or so back out to my yurt and spend the rest of the time out there. So it was a really amazing time. Most of that time, <laughs> most of that time felt like it felt when I was inside of that purple sphere. It felt heightened. It felt easy. It felt connected. There was love. There was an understanding of the way the world worked. Like it was, it was a really, really, really good time. And, and looking back on it, I feel like it was a blueprint. It was a touchstone for me to remember how it could be. Only in hindsight, do I know what I was going to go through and how important both my childhood and then the time in the year, that connection to something that this underlying energetic structure of the planet that can be tapped into and that, that I felt very safe in. I needed those touchstones, I needed them. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Robin Lassiter. To do that, just become a patron or a plus listener. If you're not on plus, <laughs> if you're not on plus, you're on minus. Patrons and plusers get VIP passes to the world premiere of Something Happened to Me, the new feature film about a person who happens to have a happening happen to her. I never expected that something would happen to me, but it did. I remember thinking, please God, please God, anything but something. But that's what it was. It was something, and it happened to me. At first I said, this is nothing, but it wasn't nothing. It was something. Something. This fall, the incomprehensible ensues when an unsuspecting sentient biped unwittingly situates in the realm of manifest phenomena, acquires an identity, and that identity confronts an occurrence through awareness. I remember being like, I'm just gonna be, you know? Be a body. Maybe some self-reflexive consciousness. Nobody said there'd be experience. You don't expect an event mediated by senses, stored in memory and assigned meaning. But everything changed when something happened to her. Okay, who's she? It happened to me. Yes, I meant you. And fuck, see? Now that reminds me. Oh my God, it happened to me. Something happened to me. I'm not like other people. She's not. 
Something happened to me. It did. I have a friend. Nothing ever happens to her. It doesn't. It's like, it's like nothing ever happens, and then something does, and then it's, it's to me. It's not like that. It is that. And coming soon, the blockbuster sequel to Something Happened to Me. Another thing took place, and I was involved. Every day now, I wake up wondering, will an incident transpire? Because one did. That's true. Just click the link in the show notes to become a patron or a pluser. You get exclusive episodes, you support this podcast, and your life becomes a profusion of Japanese cherry blossoms blooming in your body on the reg. Also, we are funding other projects. We've got big visions. We want to make a documentary film version of Aliens and Artists. Yes, making the feature-length film Aliens and Artists. So we've begun work on funding that film. We are looking for financing for Aliens and Artists, the movie. If you're interested in helping make that happen, just email me at stuart at stuartdavis.com. That's spelled S-T-U-A-R-T, art, stuart at stuartdavis.com. Feels like it's time. Help us make a cinematic hybrid baby, Aliens and Artists, the movie. Scry on it a while and then ping me. Let's do this while movies are still popular. Show me the art. January 2002. A contract worker at a hospital in County Limerick, Ireland, finds a winter coat on the rooftop of the hospital. A very odd item to find on the roof of such a facility. Through means not related in the public accounts of this story, the hospital staff finds a way to identify the owner and return the coat to him. The owner of said coat? Jerry Battles, 61 years old. Jerry is a retired carpenter living in the village of Palace Kenry, County Limerick, Population 664 good souls. Perhaps Jerry had some acquaintance with the contract worker because of their similar vocations. Whatever the case, when Jerry Battle's winter coat is returned to him, it triggers a flood of memories. The bizarre and inexplicable fact of his coat being on top of a hospital becomes a bit more explicable as he suddenly recalls how he parted with it, which goes as follows. December 26, 2001. After two drinks celebrating Christmas, Jerry leaves the Seven Sisters pub in Keldimo about 8 p.m. on foot. Only a couple minutes from home, he pauses to behold the unusually clear sky. Jerry says, quote, It was a clear, dry night. It was really crisp and frosty. Just beautiful. You could have read a book with the light of the night sky, but I wasn't drawn by the light of the stars or the moon, but by a bright, surgical, white light coming from the other end of the Boreen." End quote. A Boreen is a narrow, often unpaved, rural road in Ireland. Jerry became entranced by the strange white light at the end of the Boreen. His memory then jumps to being on board a craft with around 40 other men all seeming to be in a state of induced torpor. They stood motionless, inert. Quote, they were all male, of different age groups, all standing shoulder to shoulder like mannequins. I remember one man next to me wearing a Columbo-style coat and hat. We were all in a state of paralysis. I could only move my eyes, so I couldn't see much. The next thing I remember, I'm floating into another bigger chamber with a 360-degree viewing deck. It was then I saw the extraterrestrial. I couldn't tell how big he was or even if he had arms or legs. All I remember is his big cone head and his beautiful, ginormous eyes. They were jet black, almost like mirrors. He spoke to me through telepathy and said, You are not terrified like the others. No, I am not. Should I be? End quote. Apparently, Jerry's equanimity in the face of such circumstances pleased the entity, 
So much so, it asked Jerry if he had any request. Jerry instantly asked to see the North Pole, perhaps still in the Christmas spirit. Quote, The next thing, the extraterrestrial gave a command. In an instant, we were at the North Pole. I was in awe. It was like driving through a snowstorm at 500 miles an hour. End quote. This beautiful detour came with a hideous message. The being told Jerry that in 850 years, which I guess at this point is down to 830 as this occurred in 2001, so in 830 years, life on Earth will be destroyed by an asteroid the size of Munster. Munster is about one-third the size of Ireland. The entity elaborated, quote, You have come a long way in such a short space of time, but your time is running out. The asteroid will approach your planet from the 35th quadrant. We are four million light years more advanced than you are. We've been observing you for millennia, and all that time you have only excelled at two things, global warfare and lying to your own species." End quote. The entity emphasized some other points, such as don't trust governments or banks, and there is a coming financial crisis. Did this possibly presage the 2007-2018 financial debacle? But beyond that, yes, I have questions, listeners, as I'm sure you do. Such as, hey entity, perhaps sometime, oh, say in the next 829 years or so, how about knocking that asteroid a thousandth of a degree off course? Also, where is the 35th quadrant? Quadrant, of course, means four, 35 and Quadrant are not the most natural bedfellows. Is that a Star Trek reference? Also, as well, in addition to Lee, why is the entity four million more light years advanced? Wouldn't it just be years which measure time, not light years which connote distance? But by far the biggest question I have is why every newspaper that ran this story went ahead and featured Jerry's artwork, and then never once mentioned his paintings. The paintings of the fucking alien that he painted. Those paintings all around him, which were clearly critical in how he processed this profound experience. What a bag of newspaper dicks. I am sincerely trying to track Jerry down. I have a message out to the Seven Sisters pub on Facebook to see if they can help. Stay tuned, Cosmic Hugs from Aliens and Artists, Jerry. The Liminal Muse is where I offer one-on-one sessions, everything from past life regression, talk sessions on sightings, missing time, non-human entity encounters, abduction, out of body, and also deep dives into creativity as a spiritual lineage. This path of something from nothing includes transformative practices to activate your mystical life and strengthen your sovereignty. Click the link in the show notes to book a session or go to theliminalmuse.com. And minds 
the sea Wherever I am I'm already free And I need it 